Sup, monks. Welcome back to the Maham Khan podcast, a philosophical guide to self-development in the digital world. If you haven't heard already, I made a very exciting announcement last week that my first stage play is going to be going on in Dublin, July 4th to the 8th, uh, in the new theatre in Temple Bar, uh, in association with the Arts Council, Dublin um, Literature Society of UNESCO, and the new theatre also. The tickets are on sale at the moment. Numbers are very limited because it's a smaller theatre. The Saturday night one is nearly sold out already. I think there's maybe five or six tickets left to that. So we are advising people to buy early to avoid missing out because by the time it comes around, it will probably be sold out. So definitely get a ticket for that. Um, The play Waiting for the Offo is a dramatic comedy about... Growing up in the modern world, mental health, friendship, and the session, of course. Being on the session, trying to be off the session, uh, I'm sure it will be very relevant for most people and relatable. Also just a good night out, you know what I mean? Real humans in a real room doing human stuff, not on the internet. So it should be pretty sick. I'm very excited for this podcast today where I was joined by Greg Enriquez. Uh, Greg, if you're fan of John Verveke's work, is a frequent interlocutor in John's dialogues. He's a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology and an author. And in this podcast, we're talking about his work on the problem of psychology. You might not know that there is a problem in psychology. We will get into that. And this is some big thinking. We go from the Big Bang, essentially, all the way to, you know, the digital world and social media and the current mental health crisis through evolution, through chemistry, through single-cell organisms. It is quite the flight of intellect um, and a real treat to listen to because Greg is a master of this stuff and he's trying to do something that's very difficult, um, extraordinarily difficult, but super necessary. So if you have an interest in these things, I'm sure you will have your mind blown like I did because it is not something that people manage to put together often. But without further ado, I'll get out of the way and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh! Welcome back, everybody. I am delighted today to be joined by Greg Enriquez. I'm a longtime fan of Greg. If you're a fan of Verveke's work, you've obviously seen him lots of times in amazing dialogues. And Greg is an American psychologist. He's the professor for Combined Integral Doctoral Program at James Madison University. He's also the author of A New Unified Theory of Psychology and the recent uh, synthesis for solving the problem of psychology, which is predominantly what we're going to be talking about today. So I suppose to start off with, Greg, you know, what is the problem of psychology? What, what, what's the big issue? Okay, well, first, let me say um, it's really a joy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to come and share some ideas with you. Um, so, yeah, the, the problem of psychology uh, is my term uh, for an old term called the crisis in psychology. So I'm pointing to something that exists, has been known about. Um, so the, the short punchline of the problem is we don't know what we mean by the term. Okay, uh, So psychology uh, doesn't have a clear referent in the world. And I really want to highlight what that means for people. So um, if you're going to try to put psychology in the context of science, the natural sciences, 
which really the modern institution of psychology really gets its identity for. Um, certainly the word was kicked around prior to that. But when we really think about the establishment of the institution of psychology, um, certainly in the United States and in Britain uh, and in Germany, it really is coming in the 19th century uh, as an attempt to bring the methods, the assumptions of natural, empirical, modern science to bear on the whatever then the topic is. Um, one thing that we can note around uh, disciplines, scientific disciplines, um, beneath psychology, at least in a more basic pattern, is that they have uh, a pretty clear, the technical term I'll give is an ontological referent. Ontology means the thing in the world or reality. An ontological referent then is the thing in the world that you're pointing to. Okay. Um, so chemistry. Chemistry really is about the structure of matter, uh, the way in which the atomic structure emerges, and then chemical transformations that emerge in relationship. So we know what atoms are and molecules, and chemist, our, chemistry is the science of that. Uh, we can go under chemistry and say, well, physics really is the science of energy across space-time scales, okay, energy into matter. Um, we can go above chemistry and say, well, then there's biology, okay, and biology drops into chemistry, but molecular biology, biochemistry. It's about genes. It's about cells. It's about organisms. It's the science of life, okay? And in the world, scientifically, we can point to things that are living and be like, oh, that's what a biologist studies. We can point to uh, atoms and molecules and say, well, instead of chemist studies, we can point to the galaxies or grab it, you know, drop something and say, well, that's what physics is about. That ontological referent where you have the agreement about what the thing in the world is that the scientists are studies breaks down completely when we go from biology into neuroscience and then jump into my discipline called psychology. Okay. So when you say psychology, what is the thing that you're actually referring to? All right. And different disciplines that lay claim to being psychological disciplines in terms of the institution, the different schools of thought, they define the concept of psychology in radically different ways. Okay. And this has happened really since the beginning of the discipline. Uh, so uh, early on, you get the discipline is about psychophysics. Okay. Psychophysics is matching changes in the exterior environment to sensation. You get some of the coolest laws in psychophysics and in, in, in that we have access to and maintain, like the just noticeable difference law, Weber's law. Um, these are relationship of change between stimulus exterior and the experience of sensation, for example, loudness or pressure points or et cetera. That was actually sort of the original uh, kind of idea for studying whatever psychology is. Is it, is it this thing behind your eyes? Um, this felt experience of being in the world, this qualitative perception, is that what psychology is about? Uh, the German lineage that goes from psychophysics into Wilhelm Wundt um, thought that that was the base of psychology, that was the core, the human conscious experience. And ultimately, they tried to study that through introspection, systematic introspection, so people would peer into their minds and tell you what they saw, and they would be trained in that way. So psychology in that world is about you know, your subjective conscious experience of being. Okay. Um, other, that's called, ultimately, the, although Wundt doesn't call it, that is where the psychology, 1879 is where it gets its birth date. And then structuralism emerges out of that, especially in the United States. And structure refers to the structure of essentially your subjective conscious thought. 
Other people said, no, uh, psychology really isn't about what's inside the head, so to speak, but about how what's going on inside the head relates to the functional adaptation of either animals or humans to the world. Um, and this is called functionalism. And this says psychology is about mental life. Okay. And mental life is something that you could observe. It connects to consciousness, but you can see what's going on from the outside. Um, you get a Freudian view. A Freudian view basically then comes along and says, well, there's self-conscious justification out here, rationalizing, and underneath that is an underlying unconscious, and we can analyze that, and we also need to learn to help people. Freudian theory is one of the first um, then that bridges to what would become the dominant form of psychology, which is like mental health professionals. Okay, uh, So now you have this whole, there's another problem that's going to emerge, is the identity of psychology a, psycho, a doctor that comes and helps people with psychological problems, or is it a research science position? Psychology will get confused in that regard as well. Um, you also get then the behavioral tradition, which says there's mental and consciousness doesn't fit with science. Science is about observable patterns in the world. You get a stimulus response pairing, and we experimentally analyze the relationship between independent variables that then get framed as stimuli often, and then response, uh, dependent variables, which are the responses. So a stimulus-response pairing is, of course, very different than uh, between an internal conscious experience, a self-conscious justification, an underlying subconscious, a functional view of animals and humans versus the just to focus on the subject of conscious experience of being. I could go on, but hopefully you get the point that you have different schools of thought that are pointing to different things in the world that could be a scientist of mind slash behavior. And the ultimate result of this is the crisis of psychology that's identified in the 1910s and 20s, Lev Vygotsky, perhaps most famously. And they say, hey, this thing of called psychology is all of these different schools of thought, focus on different things in the world. Even a lay person, if you just point it out to them, can see that these are different kinds of things. Are crisis, is there a real one psychology that could stand up and unify all of this? Or is really psychology all these different elements? Um, and that becomes the crisis uh, that occupies a lot of focus, and then it dissipates, and I can explain why, it never gets solved, okay? So the short answer is, why is it so impossible to place psychological science coherently on top of biology, chemistry, and physics, whereas those disciplines have a clear ontological referent, and then we get to psychology, and that ontological referent dissipates, um, and disappears, and that which makes psychology, in terms of its knowledge base, qualitatively different than the so-called hard sciences. In fact, I would argue psychology is appropriately framed as a soft science precisely because it doesn't have consensus about the thing in the world that it is about. Yeah, that really, I mean, a brilliant introduction in terms of laying out the kind of complexity of, so I really appreciate that, Greg. Thanks for just mapping it all out for us because obviously this is a very deep problem and it's something that you talk about in your book, The Enlightenment Gap. I mean, do you see this as an emergent kind of phenomenon from the confusion that came out of the Enlightenment, predominantly the splitting of the mind and the body, the mind-body problem, um, and this kind of the first, the scientific revolution and how that kind of destroyed the Christian Aristotelian framework that kind of made sense of what we were. And yeah. now I've seen psycho psychology almost trying to put that back together, but in a scientific way. Right, exactly. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so something fundamentally different emerged with a modern empirical natural science 
um, worldview. Um, and so what I basically, what emerged really is a focus then on exterior observation, systematic observation of behavior that they're going to mathematize. I mean, I'm going to bring mathematics to analyzing the unfolding of behavior. Galileo starts this, of course, actually Rene Descartes and other people and Francis Bacon play a role, but we can shorten it to say Galileo to Newton and ultimately Einstein, which gives rise to physics. And then physics creates a model of an unfolding way, you know, causal mechanical structure of matter in motion. Okay. And it's unbelievably powerful in terms of being able to uh, delineate under controlled laboratory structures, you know, what is the underlying causal structure? How do we mathematically map that? How do we eliminate exter uh, alternative explanations to really arrive at very powerful knowledge systems? Okay. Um, and that powerful knowledge system blew up to become uh, the dominant grounding of uh, our epistemology, meaning that the shit that we know in the world gets anchored into physics in a way that seems to be more powerful than any of our other knowledge systems, and it becomes dominant. And it breaks, exactly. It breaks the Christian worldview in, in many ways, in the sense that, well, part of what emerged with matter in motion and the sort of philosophy of science is really, it's almost impossible to see how you could have a dual world in other words, a world of the earth and then a world of the heavens that actually also causally interacted with the world. So the nature of the philosophy of science was such that it was difficult to fit in a causal world, another world. And in a related way, that meant it was very difficult to fit into what actually was going on with the mind and with self-consciousness. And you get Rene Descartes famously giving Cartesian dualism, but it's really the critique against Cartesian dualism that says, no, that doesn't work. And so you get this very strong matter in motion physicalism that's powerful, seems to be causally closed so that it's hard to add other features in it. And it's hard to fit mind, whatever we mean by that, into that uh, kind of domain. With natural selection and cell theory, they get life pretty well connected to it, meaning organisms and cells. But really this issue of what we mean by mind and how to fit into that is extremely difficult. And that the enlightenment gap is what I use as the a shorthand to say, hey, there's a mind-body problem. You know, how do you understand mind relative to body? There's a whole philosophy of mind that I argue is quite confusing and confused, not unlike the science of psychology. Um, and I argue that half of the enlightenment gap, uh, what I call the enlightenment gap, is made up of the mind-body problem. There's also deep problems in understanding what scientific knowledge is relative to subjective and social knowledge. I point to the modernist versus postmodern sensibility about epistemology and his knowledge about power, his knowledge about truth, kind of differences there. That's a set. But yes, if it is the case that our understanding of the world through physics made it very difficult to fit mind in, and we weren't really sure what kind of knowledge science was relative to social and subjective, how would a science of mind emerge in the absence of that understanding and so now my claim is in my most recent book is there was an enlightenment gap, a failure to have a philosophy that put in right relation mind and matter and social subjective knowledge relative to scientific knowledge. And then we tried to build a science of mind and lo and behold, we failed and instead uh, ended up with a cluster of pre-paradigmatic schools of thought uh, that all approach it in different ways. And ultimately, we default to method. My discipline defaults to method to try to justify itself as a science by applying the methods of science. But it gives up the question of what do we mean and how do we define mind, basically, uh, in the world. 
Um, and so that's the enlightenment gap. And I would argue that undergirds um, and sets the stage for the problem of psychology. So in some sense, are you saying that it's undergirded by Newtonian physics, by the kind of scientific materialist paradigm that left no room for life and consciousness and subjective experience and kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater? I always thought it was very interesting that Newton was what replaced Aristotle. And Aristotle mm -hmm. seems to have this theory of causality that seems to allow for life, the formal cause, um, oh. and how that kind of changed. So is that what you're grappling with really at the bottom is the scientific sure. materialist? Yeah, uh, well, right. It's certainly a simplistic emergent, what, what my mm -hmm. uh, what Jim Rutt uh, calls naive Newtonianism emerges in the sense that everything is little billiard balls that are bouncing into each other that are necessarily and sufficiently causal at their at their level of interaction. And if you buy that and you buy that and you expand that, then you get a basically a deterministic view. Everything is essentially billiard balls unfolding. A guy by the name of Pierre Laplace famously has this view of sort of a, a fundamental physical closed loop determinism whereby everything else is just epiphenomenal as opposed to the grounding of physical causation. That is definitely part of the problem in the sense that that idea of naive Newtonianism does get quite powerful. Uh, there are certainly ways to understand uh, early Newtonian physics that say this must be true. Of course, Newtonian physics is going to break wide open with general relativity um, and quantum field theory coming in the 19th turn of the century, really, and definitely early 20th century, and then throughout the remainder, so that uh, a naive Newtonianism now is dead in the water philosophically. Nobody really is a naive Newtonian. But it is the case that the nature of Newton and that naive did set the stage for thinking about a pretty strong, physically reductive view of the world. Um, Ken Wilber calls it the materialistic flatland view. And basically it takes Aristotle's scales of nature. Aristotle had a scale of nature of the inanimate, the animate, the animal, and the rational human, which we're going to then basically, I'm going to try to reconstitute those scales of nature. Uh, but essentially the physical system cut that off and essentially said, no, it's all just matter and different forms of complicated matter down all the way down. Uh, in fact, the behaviorist John Watson adopts that view, and several other people adopt that view. Uh, my argument is, yep, that view is known to be wrong, and we need to update a view that actually is going to bring back and revive key aspects of um, Aristotle's scales of nature, but do it in a way that's actually sophisticated and consistent uh, with what we know scientifically. That is so interesting, because I was recently watching, I don't know if you know, Robert C. Coons, who's a, an American metaphysics professor, and he... Mm -hmm did a lot of work with quantum physicists basically exploring how because Newton breaks down at the quantum level and things got fuzzier and fuzzier. And it turns out that his argument is that Aristotelian philosophy actually explains the quantum realm much better than Newtonian physics. Um, and that there's kind of a resurgence there happening because of the potential and actuality and how that can articulate the sort of strange causality at the Lovely. bottom of reality. In yeah, so in, in, in a Utah view, the, 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 yes, the unified theory of knowledge system, uh, it's grounded in what's called the tree of knowledge, which is a descriptive metaphysical system. And it says we should be grounding out, not in billiard balls, tiny little mechanical things, but ground out in an energy information implicate order. Okay, so if you understand both Big Bang and quantum field theory, my argument is the best terminology for us loose but useful gripping terminology for the ground of subsistence is energy and energy information implicate order. And if this were basically you take uh, 
a real simple view of, of uh, Einstein E equals MC squared and the understanding of expansion and contraction of galaxies in the universe. And you drop the galaxy uh, and all the galaxies and the mass of the space time that we see and you run the film backwards and it collapses um, into a singular superforce. And then we can think about that singular superforce as a whole, as energy, and then the differentiations within it is information. And out of that differentiation of energy information um, is going to then give rise to the matter order. And then life, mind, and culture, uh, the other scales of nature, are actually going to be pulling information energy off in different ways. Um, and it is then, if you understand us as a, as a web, as a field, as a matrix of energy information, as opposed to billiard balls, then all of a sudden the entire shift, there's a big shift in the sort of metaphysical grip. Um, and absolutely the quantum field stuff gives us a much better frame, I think, for a whole bunch of different things that do uh, align quite nicely, or at least aspects of it align quite nicely with Aristotle's uh, causal structure and the scales of nature uh, in, a, in an upgraded way. Aristotle did lack super, a lot of information uh, that we know yeah. would threaten his original framework. He didn't even know what a cell was, folks. Okay, so uh, the issue of, you know, it was, it was animate plants. There was no space for cells or viruses, um, which would have been very confusing to a scale of nature. But we can come back now and place uh, what Aristotle in virtually every culture in history has divided the world up into inanimate things, living things, animal things, and human things. And we can understand through the modern, or the, what I'm offering, why that is the case and how to really deeply understand that scientifically. Yeah, it's so interesting that our own culture compared to other cultures that have previously animated the whole world, that all the inanimate mm -hmm. objects become animate, that ours has gone the reverse way, that the uh, objects are inanimate and so are we in some sense. And I, I can see there how the behaviorism kind of emerges out of that Newtonian physics. And obviously, if I was understanding correctly, the behaviorism is kind of the first wave of psychology in a sense, that it this ob observation of behavior and then inferring mind from behavior. Um, it, it, it grabs behaviorism. Well, I mean, it's Vunt is actually first, and we are trying to do a basic behaviorism, but the early individuals are okay with mental terms. Behaviorism then says you can't get into mental, so you have to pull it out. It's an early version. It's not the earliest. It's actually a reaction against uh, the introspectionist. And then saying to be consistent with the rest of physics, we actually focus on observable behavior and reduce things to a stimulus response cause effect kind of frame that basically reduces the entire process to essentially neural networks and reflexes. That's essentially what a neural reflex model is essentially what Watson is offering. That's as naive and improper to think about the way things actually work as the old naive Newtonian determinism. Uh, that's just a, it's a fallacious, and he didn't have access, uh, you know, he was wrong in a number of different areas that I point out actually in the book exactly some of the areas in which he's wrong. And he doesn't have access to the right uh, gripping functions. This is before quantum mechanics, general relativity, and he's a psychologist. He's not really tracking that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, so I suppose to go on from the physics, then the next level is the biological or the well the chemistry but then the biological level are, is this um how does evolution fit into your framework here is that do you have an evolutionary framework um Absolutely. i'm kind of interested in that yeah um, yeah so essentially uh what the tree of knowledge depicts is first there's the evolution out of a an energy information singular super force 
comes the differentiation of the four great forces. That's electromagnetic, strong, weak nuclear. And if you want to call gravity a force, there's some debate as to whether that's appropriate. But whatever, for now, we'll just call it a force. Um, and then that's given rise ultimately to the particle landscape. And the particle landscapes coalesces into atoms and molecules across a complexification and then goes across scale into things like galaxies, etc. So that's the material universe. And then on planet Earth, and we're not sure, there's still some mystery as to what it is that actually were the stepwise processes. But nonetheless, there was some sort of propagation of complicated uh, and then increasingly complex adaptive. So complicated means it's got lots of different parts. A complex adaptive thing is this actually something that can move toward attractor states. Um, and then there are these key parts. There's a lipid membrane that creates what's a Markov blanket, basically, which is essentially there's an inside and an outside with stuff flowing in between. Um, and then there are parts that are maintaining the self-organizing structure uh, of it. Um, and then there's a part that enables the store of information. All of these are this sort of a proto-cell into eventually it's going to jump in an organized cell uh, along those lines. Uh, uh, Peter Damer, I think it's Peter uh, Damer's, uh, does a wonderful job of talking about sort of the um, wet-dry ponds uh, that may well have been uh, given rise for the capacity of a propagating system of protocells along this line. And then you get a, once you get a cell uh, that can replicate, uh, then all of a sudden you get a variation. There's the cell is propagating. There's variation within that. And then you get retention uh, through a genetic informational line that gives variation and there's selection and retention. Um, and so the variation is coming from across mutations initially, and then that is what's called the modern evolutionary synthesis, which is the idea that there are genetic variations that give rise to cells, and then their cells are propagating with variation. They're selected through a survival reproductive process, and then the genes enable the inherited retention of information, um, and that is the ingredients. Uh, and the modern evolutionary synthesis then is essentially putting natural selection operating on ge genetic combinations to give rise to organisms. For cellular, then there's a big jump into eukaryotic, and I didn't get into that. But fundamentally, you get this emergence then of bacteria cells, uh, and these cells are the earliest living form. Yes, they're more than just bacteria, but for our purposes, that's fine. And I suppose then this process goes on until we reach kind of the animal mental level, I guess. What I'm trying to get at here is the the issue with the mind-body problem, obviously, is at some point we become self-conscious and we become aware of ourselves and we develop something that seems or seemed, I suppose, qualitatively different to the animals. Um, Lovely. There's mm -hmm. a divergence. And I guess that's kind of a sticking point maybe for the the argument of the mind-body problem. Um, Absolutely. Well, and then the issue is, what is your primary reference for the concept of mind? Okay. And so this mm. is very key to sort out here. Uh, and I want to argue that we don't have the right vocabulary, and I try to afford us a vocabulary that enables us. So right now, what we actually have is we're following this with life. We have life giving us a complex, functional, adaptive way of responding to the world, some uh, bacteria responding. So you get this early kind of biological behavior. Okay. Uh, the living body is a complex adaptive system. It's detecting things in the environment, toxins, uh, food sources, and responding accordingly. So it has what I call functional awareness and responsivity, which is actually a, a kind of definition of consciousness. I don't mean subjective conscious experience, but living systems give rise to functional awareness and responsivity, which is actually the broadest definition of being conscious. 
Like when you ask, is that guy a conscious, the guy that's knocked out, is he conscious? Actually, when you say he's unconscious, he exhibits no functional awareness and responsivity in the normal way. Plants and bacteria exhibit functional awareness. Now, I don't think there's anything that it's like to be a bacteria, and I'll explain why, meaning I don't think there's an inner life of a bacteria that's anywhere, any like what we would call an inner life, okay? But what you get is with life, you get functional awareness and responsivity. Now we can fast forward to the Cambrian explosion at the time of that, that's about 550, 520 million years ago. At that time, what has emerged is a, things that are starting to move around like planaria worms. A planaria worm is a little bilateral worm. Mark Lemon does some unbelievably cool stuff with this. Um, and he's got uh, basically they have little eye spots. There's a little brain with like 302 neurons in it. Um, and, and it will divide itself. Actually, it doesn't really reproduce mostly through sex. It reproduces through division and then it grows its head again. It's really cool. Anyway, what you have here is you have a little sensory motor control system, a sensory motor loop. Okay. And then at the Cambrian explosion, what seems to have occurred is while the planaria are generally uh, vegetarians, as it were, they're just mostly eating plants and just going along, then what likely seemed to happen is we get a prey-predation relation with animals. So all of a sudden you start eating other animals. And this gives rise to a quick explosion in an active animal body plan where you get segmented bodies and essentially the explosion of things like crabs, Okay. Um, lobsters, as Jordan Peterson will say, lobsters are like 400 million years old. This is about 100 million years just prior to that, but you get the explosion, that's why it's called the Cambrian explosion, of the active body plan. So for me, the planaria are just about being minded. In other words, they have a brain, they have a bilateral body plan. Jellyfish before that and sponges, they're not very minded. But once you then get up into a complex active body plan that creates an active sensory motor loop, that can respond and adjust its responses to the environment, now you have a minded, what I call a minded animal, okay? Minded here refers to the property of that entity to engage in a behavior of the animal as a whole mediated through that nervous system, creates another kind of functional awareness and responsivity. That is not hard to see. Go to the woods, <laughs> okay? The plants, the bacteria, and the fungi are all engaged in functional awareness responsivity, but it's very hard for us to see. Okay, because it's not a holistic sensory motor neuromechanical looping system. Check out the birds, the bees, and the squirrels, on the other hand, and their kind of functional awareness and responsivity is a totally different thing. We call that animal behavior. The proper term should be minded behavior. Okay, mindedness refers to the kind of behavior that makes animals so different. And this would have been totally consistent with Aristotle, which basically identified the layer of animal as a sensory motor looping structure, okay? So the argument from the tree of knowledge is just like life jumps off of matter because there's a complexity building feedback loop that gives rise to a new information processing system and communication network, another information processing system communication network emerges at the level of animal. Animals are, of course, living organisms, but now on top of that, they become minded animals. And my argument is that the proper definition of basic psychology is to ask the question, hey, what is that sensory motor looping structure? How does it emerge? How does it enable animals to adjust to their environment? By the way, this does connect to what's, what William James called as functionalism. However, William James's functionalism was a tied to consciousness. I am not tying this in, in the subjective into self-conscious meaning of the term. I'll hold off on that. I have no idea whether houseflies have a conscious experience of being. 
okay? Instead, what I'm saying is that they're minded, they have a neurocognitive structure, they have a brain, they have an active body, they respond. We don't really know if there's anything that is like to be a housefly, okay? What this means is that we have one definition of mind, which is neurocognitive activity inside and out. Flies are obviously minded in that way. Then I'm gonna call that mind one, okay? That's one definition. It's a kind of functional awareness and responsivity. Life is functionally aware and responsive in one way, that's living organism. This is a minded animal. Then the question is, do they have subjective conscious experience? And I wanna call that mind two. That is, what is it like to be a housefly? We don't know the answer to that, okay? Um, there's a lot of debate, uh, lots of good, but we don't have enough knowledge of exactly how mind one turns into mind two. Um, we do know, of course, mind one becomes mind two down the line. And there's a lot of good argument that would say by the time we have mammals on the scene, um, and certainly by the time we have things like primates on the scene, we have a mind to, meaning there is something that's like to be a monkey or a dog. I think there's a lot of good evidence there's something to be like a crow, okay? It's very plausible there's something to be like an octopus, which is a totally different uh, evolutionary history. What is it like to be an octopus? Great question. Don't have a lot of good answers. You can do lots of inference. This is mind two. Okay, in my vocabulary, um, it's different than mind one because it's by definition, it's an inside out epistemology. Epistemology is how you know. The way you know mind two is through the direct epistemological portal that you're situated in. And it's essentially impossible to see that from the outside in. What we see is behavior. We don't see the subjective conscious experience of being that's mind two as opposed to mind one. And in the animal kingdom, there's an evolution of mind one. And we can track mind too, uh, but it's pretty hard in the animal kingdom uh, to get clear on what is it like to be a bat. This is a famous term by Nagel. And uh, David Chalmers talks about this in terms of the hard problem. Uh, so David Chalmers' hard problem corresponds to my mind too. The easy problem is what I'm referring to as mind one. This is fantastic, Greg. Thank you so much for, I, I know it's, going so deep in it but i really getting a sense of the entire kind of story for people hopefully um from start to finish because I, I really think this is so valuable and the next kind of step then we have is obviously we have so we're observing from the outside in the behavior of the animal we're inferring that it has some of the stuff but obviously seems to be missing something else it doesn't have the sense of self it doesn't have this imaginative capacity the creative capacity the language capacity that we seem to have is that kind of the next step then to mind three? Exactly, exactly. So the argument is, and I do think that there's good evidence that animals will carry a bit of a sense of a self. I certainly think an elephant and other animals probably mm. carry a kind of sense of self. And they definitely hire animals, this cortex structure, they can simulate what the behavioral investments that they're doing across time. Um, and indeed, this is necessary. These are the necessary machinery that we needed as primates to set the stage for our next jump, okay? So you definitely get in the animal kingdom's capacity to mentally manipulate various scenarios. You definitely probably in social animals get a felt sense of a self. There's good evidence that some animals, although actually it's pretty minimal in the animal kingdom, can pass what's called the mirror self-recognition test. That's if you put a mark on it when it's not paying attention and then it'll look in the mirror and will, it will, won't look in the mirror, it will look at itself. Dogs, by the way, fail at this test, interestingly enough. Uh, they think that they seem to respond to the mirror image as if something that it's another dog. 
They don't aren't able to track that that's their modeling. Chimpanzees do, uh, dolphins do, a number of animals are able to make that distinction. So that shows you where cognitively this kind of capacity to mentally represent the self. What I will track in the humans is really a two-step jump. So we'll go from chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, uh, and they're complicated creatures that live in rich mental lives. They have friends, they have enemies, they engage in chimpanzee politics, to use Franz Duvall term. It's a fascinating life as a chimpanzee. Um, we actually take, in my estimation, two steps, okay, two very important steps. The first is identified by Tomasello, Michael Tomasello. And what he argues is that what we start to do as a unique grade ape is we start to have the cognitive capacity to read other people's attention and intention and sync up with it qualitatively more, uh, in a qualitatively more sophisticated way. Okay, so I can sense what you're doing. We you may have here like mirror neurons. Okay, that's it. Well, uh, then we would maybe have a lot of those. Um, but if I see you trying to open up a can, I I can sense your Aristotelian and a cause. <laughs> you're trying to do that. I can place myself in you, and I can track that. The easiest way to see this sort of empirically is to watch how early kids learn. When you point, they look in the direction that you're pointing. How, early, how easily kids can play together and create imaginary worlds. Other animals have a lot of difficulty doing this. Uh, they don't show, by the time we're two and three, we're out shooting other chimpanzees and other great apes and Michael Tomasello. For me, what's happening here is this is a capacity to sync up our implicit intersubjective space. It's going to give rise to our coordinated hunting uh, that the hunter-gatherers are doing. It's probably going to give rise to music. And, and then we're going to set the stage for, so now we're coordinating, we're cooperating, we're sharing, we're creating a group intention, attention that enables us to hunt differently um, and, and track each other's, and this is a new cognitive ability that's probably putting demands on the head size and other kinds of elements. And then finally, what happens is we get the jump into language, which itself probably is at least two steps. One is the symbolic tagging, uh, so their antelope. Okay, so this capacity to associate particular symbols with nouns and verbs and commands, uh, that's probably the first step. And then what I really hone in on is when we take symbolic symbols and they become symbolic syntactical propositions. So when we go from their antelope to there are the antelope, uh, we generate a proposition. And a proposition in the unified theory, the proposition is a tipping point. Okay. Um, the reason is because it affords us a positive meaning statement, there are the antelope, which can then be challenged, okay? Um, how do you know they're antelope? How do you know they're there? What this means is that propositions can be questioned, and we have access to her. Just think about our what, when, why, where, how. We, there's, good at, there's a debate as to whether any other animal has ever asked a question, okay? That's an interesting point. Kids come in, and as soon as they start mastering propositions, they start asking questions, okay? And the argument is that there's a very tight connection between propositions, which create positive meaning space, and then questions which dock to propositions and ask, hey, how do you know that's accurate? And then how do you know that's good, okay? In essence, these are two big questions about propositions. Is it, uh, is it accurate? Is it good? And then is it good for me? And is it good for the group? Are the two big value questions. The argument is that this created the problem of justification, which is how do we know what propositions are legitimate? This creates question-answer dynamic space, which is generative, and this then generates the, uh, the explosion of justification systems. 
which are propositional networks that force self-recursivity. Hey, why are you doing what you're doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And create a self-recursive justificatory evolution that I call the culture person plane of existence that we plug into through the concept of mind three, which is what Rene Descartes was really focused on when he talked about, I think, therefore I am. That definition of mind is mind three. And that's pretty, if it's got any presence in animals, it's pretty limited. And by the time you're an adult human being, your mind three is qualitatively different. So we share minds with other animals, mind one and mind two. Mind three is a whole nother mind uh, that we get socialized into through culture, and that is quite unique uh, in the way that operates. So notice we got the term mind, mind one, neurocognitive activity, inside and out. Mind two, subjective conscious experience. That's a totally different reference. And now mind three, which is shared between language communities. Notice mind three is not really inside or out. It's an intersubjective. I can certainly do it privately, but unlike my experiences, my propositions flow right through the skin and you can be transcribed. So you, there's not really the same private public dynamic with them. Um, and so, boom, you get this whole human uh, level of mentation on top of your animal mentation. And we go from primates to cultured persons. Yeah, and we get, it was kind of, as you were saying there about the justifications, I mean, we get epistemology, figuring out, you know, what's real, what's not real. We get ethics, what's good, what's not good. We get metaphysics questions about, you know, reality. And that seems to be then the level of culture. So do you think without the cultural layer, we're, we'd fall back essentially to mind too? I mean, our, our development obviously is so, so pertinent um, culturally that so much of mind three is the product of cultural evolution. Yeah, absolutely. And then we need, we, need a, we need a collective socialized structure uh, so we get socialized mm -hmm. into the socially constructed nature of reality. That's what it means to become acculturated. Bergman and Luckman talk about the social construction of reality. And there are some unfortunate cases that essentially prove this. In other words, there's some feral children, people that completely get completely isolated from culture before they're really socialized. And they essentially live, you know, some are raised by wolves and they live close to wolf life or, or they live close to other ape-like kind of structures. You have to be careful about, you know, being a little pejorative here, but essentially they live uh, very much like other mammals. Uh, if you do not get socialized, um, you can see that the, the there's a key developmental process that allows us to plug into the socialization language dimension. And that it gives rise to definitely a different way of being in the world for sure. Yeah, and you can see how that would be a problem with the Enlightenment, essentially, that kind of created the gap between previous ideas and the future ones with this uh, kind of focus on hyper-rationalism, but rationality just as pure logic and the rejection of, say, mythology, of stories, of other ways of making sense of reality that we had before. And you get this kind of divide emerging where we can't understand mind to mind one in that way anymore. They start That's to kind exactly of drift. Right. Yeah, I think that a number of people are really seeing this very clearly. Uh, in other words, what emerges, so you're absolutely right. So first what's happening is the social construction of reality. Hey, you know, we're a clan. We do what we're going to do. You know, we don't actually, they try to uh, regulate dominance and narcissism. We get together. We have our identity. There's us over there. There's here. We're embedded in nature and blah, blah, blah. And then we get civilization. Uh, civilization gives rise to the traditional uh, sensibility, traditional formal sensibility. It's going to give rise to refined knowledge. 
Okay. Um, and in the West, at least, although this certainly is general, but I'll trail us to in Western civilizations, a little different in China and Hindu. But we can basically say something really remarkable happens with the Greeks. Okay. And in particular, Socrates. So we can, you know, uh, a fan of John Verbeke after Socrates, what's going on there? In a nutshell, there you go. In a nutshell, right. What does Socrates really do? In my estimation, what Socrates recognizes is the problem of epistemology, okay? The Socratic method is, fuck, where does all of our knowledge about justice and what is good and everything else come from? It's this sort of socially convention, justification, quasi-rationalized, taken for granted, this is obviously true kind of dynamic. And then he comes with a refined question. The Socratic method is then a refined question to find out what is grounding this justification. Now, what's the ontology and refined epistemology? And of course, Socrates famously becomes wise, uh, really learned ignorance to use John, but ultimately he is famous for saying, well, I know that I know nothing, that's why. He doesn't really mean he knows nothing, but he really knows that, oh, geez, when we really get to the ground of our justificatory narrative, it bottoms out. We don't really know how to situate all what we claim to know in anything that's like clearly foundationally defensible from an epistemological vantage point. And indeed, I would argue you get Plato and Aristotle, Plato with his theory of the forms that's going to drive a Neoplatonic structure, Aristotle with his scales of nature and his approach to science and a materialist, more materialist grounding structure. You get these two great ontologies, forms and matter, as trying to answer Socrates and give us a sense of what is the world fundamentally about that we could actually be grounded in a justificatory narrative that's up to the refined task of responding to Socrates uh, in a way that's you know reasonable and coherent. Um, and so you get refined knowledge coming out of this, at least in the Western tradition. And then ultimately, as we talked about, you go these traditional refined knowledge coherentist kinds of perspectives and then you get a shift into what's called a correspondent justification, which is what science is about. It's like, well, actually, the nature of what people thought of in terms of like the sun-earth relationship was really <laughs> groundbreaking. And it's like, shit, you know, actually, the earth is not the center of the universe. The sun is. All of our observations are questionable. We need a systematic way to observe, to measure, to mathematically uh, operate, and then reduce and eliminate other alternative explanations through experimentation. That's then the modern scientific enterprise, which is a whole nother jump in epistemology. Um, the nice thing about justification hypothesis is it says, actually, I can now put this in the landscape of evolution. A justification emerged as a process, and now I can point to it in the world that says, oh, when we get from social justification with the emergence of propositions, question, answers, then that evolves. We create an oral indigenous landscape. Then we embed agriculture, develop civilizations, then we get these formal institutional structures. Then we get science, okay, coming off of a refined reflection into a method. And then we get the science trying to come back and map matter and life and doing that pretty well. But actually, we fucked up and didn't figure out how to actually map minded animals and cultured persons and the difference between a specific human knower and what science tells us about the unfolding of behavior. Um, and you talk helps us carve nature at the joints from living organisms, minded animals and minded animals to cultured persons and differentiate a scientific language game, uh, which is an outside in behavioral game. Uh, from a phenomenological first-person experience in the world, which is an inside-out, um, really from mind two, uh, your unique mind two instead of mind one and mind three, which is what science has much more direct access to. And you talk affords us a way to map the territory in a different way that I argue is coherent and complete, at least at the edges, so that we can finally say 
what the hell is psychology about in the world? Yeah, it seems like the problem with psychology goes to the root of so much of this, um, which is really interesting because Verveke talks about how there's a hole in the ontology of science because science is done by people, but there's this idea that people aren't reliable, so you need a method and our subjective experience can't be trusted, but we ultimately have to kind of observe it and interpret it. Um, so does this, I mean, does the problem relate to the ontology of science as well? Is that something that's kind of, that is science going to be situated within this ontology more? Because I know Verveke's talked about science should be situated in a neoplatonic conception. It should, it needs this kind of metaphysics to ground it. Yeah, no, John and I are very tight. I mean, he's more explicitly committed into a neoplatonic literature that I'm not very familiar with, and I'm explicitly committed to my Utah frame, which is this novel structure. It's a miracle how much that John and I system overlap. You got, yeah, because I've watched tons of your talks, mm -hmm. and you don't seem to be at odds about any of it. I, I That's really, why I'm I, interested, because yeah. I'd be much more familiar with the philosophy rather than the right. other side. So I'm very right. interested in the, the intersection, I suppose. Well, it's a it's a fascinating and and uh, brilliant and and uh, intersection. I say that from you know, as like to join with John and to find you know essentially a philosophical brother who's climbed up the mountain in a very similar way. John was very concerned about the synoptic integration of Fourier cognitive science or cognitive science in general. Basically, his concern is that we equivocate on mind. Um, anthropologists mean one way, you know, uh, uh, artificial intelligence people mean the computational architecture. Anthropologists mean basically the mind three cultural mind. Uh, neuroscientists mean mind one inside the animal. Behaviorists mean mind one outside. The Many of the phenomenologists mean mind two, okay? So he talks about that very clearly, the problem of mind and how we'd have a fail to have a synoptic integration. And he's trying to get a way to frame the bridge between philosophy and psychology in a way that is potentially coheres. And he's constantly pointing up, we actually need a model of the human knower relative to the known. We need scientists, we need a model of intelligibility that includes how we know about shit and how that came about. We can't just factor out the knower and imagine that we can just have equations that specify the unfolding of determinism that don't actually include us interpreting what those mean. That's, a, you know, he makes that point. We need a metaphysics that includes the knower. And indeed, this is exactly what I discovered with the tree of knowledge. Okay. What, and that was, a, I mean, originally the good, wasn't it, in the Neoplatonic? Because I recently had D.C. Schindler, who wrote the hmm. Plato's Critique of Empire Reason, and I got to speak with him about it. And his kind of core question of, you know, what's the reason for reason? You know, you can't make a rational argument for rationality. It doesn't presuppose the validity of rationality. So it has to be grounded on something else. And in the Platonic conception, that's the good, which, as John interprets, is the, you know, the continually held promise of the wedding of the intelligibility of reality and that that's implied by science as well, because it's empirical. I mean, <laughs> there has to be some yep. connection there. Right. Um, no, absolutely. So so the transjective relationship between the agent and arena that affords the right recursive relevance realization over the stack is the logos for John. And it is that is the good grip that gives you meaning in life. And it's a beautiful articulation. Um, and, and it was missing from my formulation. Uh, what I had in my formulation was what I call a weak neurocognitive functionalism that I built a thing called behavioral investment theory. Behavioral investment yes, theory yes, said yes. that the animal 
it, what it tied together was evolution, uh, energy economics, like, okay, how do you, like Carl Frist and free energy principle kinds of stuff. How do you, how is a dissipative structure going to maintain work energy uh, efficiently? That's a, that's the first principle. Then how does it evolve? That's the second principle. What's the genetic difference, individual genetic differences? And then how's that going to influence physiology? That's the third principle. What is the neurocomputational control architecture? That's the fourth principle. What's the, how does it learn and adjust according to feedback? That's the fifth principle. And what's its developmental life history? The argument of what the animal is trying to do is it's trying to essentially coordinate the behavior of the animal as a whole and find paths of investment across the capacity for it to predict and model. Okay, so that's the basic structure. It's going to do a cost-benefit analysis, find the right path of investment. And I call that a weak neurocognitive functionalism because it combines lots of different stuff. It affords you enough specificity and it gives you an optimal grip, but it was weak. The question is what really ties this together? Well, recursive relevance realization, John's recursive relevance realization sits like a brilliant lock, a key inside this lock structure. So I build this sort of general lock structure. It's like, yeah, what would be? And now I have a strong neurocognitive functionalism recursive relevance realization that then dips into the predictive processing mechanisms that can be identified by people like Carl Friston and expands out into a map of my transjective phenomenology. What do I mean by that? Well, my phenomenological situation in the world is actually, yes, it's tracking paths of investment. How is it doing that? It's creating relevant frames that enable me to realize, both perceptually realize what's in the world and then action realize which I can create the world and then do that through a set of recursive interaction modeling structures across a hierarchy. Um, it's a brilliant and elegant articulation of what the actual cognitive part of the neurocognitive structure is doing throughout the stack. Um, and that's why I'm a big fan of John, because it affords us a much richer articulation. And I would argue the combination of John's views and cognitive for cognitive science and my stuff in psychology means that we actually now have a synoptic integration that was missing in the past. We can actually define what mine is across those, all those various uh, configurations, uh, see what they're pointing to, place them in right relation. Um, and I'll pause there. A lot of stuff I could say, but I'll just pause. Yeah, I wanted to zoom in a little bit just on that because, uh, I mean, it's the the recursive relevance realization. And because I heard you describe the nervous system as a, I think it was a value investment mm -hmm. system or something like that. But because it seems so like what John's talking about would say efficiency and resiliency that you have these trade-offs. He talks about like the, mm -hmm. the bioeconomics of the mind that we're calculating these investment strategies of like efficiency versus or resiliency. And we have all these trade-offs that we're dealing with all the time. And we're trying to get that optimal grip across all the levels of the stack and trading off between them. Um, and how, I mean, does that, is that where it ties into the psychology or to the therapeutic aspect in a sense of where, people are poorly gripping in the situation or they're, they're not, you know, managing the behavioral investments. Is that kind of that well, sure. step? Sure. So one of the big things is what is the identity and framing relationship that the organism is bringing to bear? In this case, then if we're talking psychotherapy, now we're all of a sudden into human persons. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so how are individuals epistemically framing their situation? Okay. Um, and I got trained in cognitive psychotherapy, cognitive psychotherapy, focuses really on not so much the overall cognitive grip, although Beck would sometimes say that. And so he doesn't use cognitive in the same way John uses it. He uses it much more in the Rene Descartesian sense generally, if you pay attention. And that's your self-talking reasoning structure. Okay. Um, but both of them, essentially, what's your perspectival identity grip in the situation? Um, and that goes down into your primate, all the way down to your mammal, your animal and organism felt sense of what is the agent arena relationship? 
in your embodiment and in actin. And so these are perspectival, participatory, and procedural kinds of knowing as a primate level. Okay, so we can take John's view. In fact, I do this all the time ever since I learned it. It's like, what is the felt identity sense of this individual? Their participatory felt identity in the world. That becomes their self-grip. That's intuitive and embodied. Okay, and then I'm going to see it in terms of their affect, their motivation, how they perspectively react to particular kinds of situations. Now, what I bring to bear a little bit more directly than John is the articulation of this aspect of our psyche as your primate psyche. So the perspectival, procedural, and um, uh, participatory are actually all present in primate structures prior to our reflective per, uh, propositional person structure. Okay, So on top of the primate structure is a reflective propositional purpose uh, person structure, and that operates in a different dynamic okay, than the primate. Um, and you can see this in Freud super clearly. In fact, I tie my ideas about justification to Freud, and it basically says, we as a cultured persons live across a different time scale with different notions of right and wrong and responsibility. We can hold people accountable. We can justify them. We can I mean, judge them, force them to justify. And so you have to live as a person that justifies the action of your primate. And, and Freud called this the horse rider phenomenon of the ego. The ego's a rider on top of the below ego, the it, which is the horse. Okay. So one of the things that I really focus on is what, what is the primate's identity and perspective and felt sense of being in the world, often referred to as the primate heart when I'm focused on relationships in particular. And then what is the person trying to justify in relationship to that? Tell the story about how it makes sense. This is a cognitive view. Um, it's also psychodynamic. How is it defended against shit and filtering out what it feels like? And then how is it trying to put itself on the uh, the individual? How they're trying to put themselves on the social stage and manage their reputation, manage what other people think of them. Uh, how do they feel their identity is received relative to the way in which it's um, projected? And then what is that relationship? Many people come to the office with a very conflicted uh, intrapsychic interpersonal relationship. In fact, the big class of conditions called the internalizing conditions, that's depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, relationship conflict. It means that shit's gone bad and the rider is pissed off and is attacking others or defending against the situation in a vulnerable and brittle way. And that's actually creating more problems. So you get a vicious feedback between the head, the heart, and the relational world. My job as a psychotherapist is to diagnose those domains, see where they're in conflict, and figure out a way to untangle them, or I'll help the person see how they might untangle them and cultivate a context in which they would have the safety and the courage to lean into new ways of being. And if they get lucky and start to realize they can reverse some of those loops, uh, they'll find a reciprocal opening, much more flexible, adaptive, wise way of being in the world. It's really interesting highlighting the kind of conflict between the mind two, mind three level and the justificatory structure of the stories that we tell ourselves and the effects that that has on our, our affect systems, our actions, our relationships with others. Because we're always, it always struck me how interesting, how much thinking is evaluating constantly, that we're always mm -hmm. monitoring our position and where we are relative to things, how things are going and um, how that can become kind of a negative feedback loop. So I suppose to pause on that for a second, I mean, for somebody that's, having that kind of emotional dysregulation or that kind of, you know, how can this understanding help them to deal with that, the issue between the justifications and the, the primate mind too? Totally. Exactly. Um, so uh, this is the vulnerable thing that you have to pay attention to is what I call 
neurotic loops. And the extended name of this, a neurotic loop means that there's a loop that's going to be problematic. Neurotic is an evaluative term we want to bring that says you're not responding optimally and perhaps causing more problems, even as you're making a good faith effort to solve them. Okay. The analogy I have for neurotic is like when you bring water to a grease fire. Makes sense if you see fire on the off stove, fire. Okay. That's a problem. That's bad. But if you bring water to a grease fire, you'll blow it up. Okay. A lot of solutions look like they make sense and they don't. Okay. So in the world of psychotherapy and the internalizing conditions, what happens is negative situations trigger negative feelings. Okay. And I think our culture's not very good at teaching people about their feelings. Okay. Often it's like, oh, you know, whatever you're feeling is fine. Okay. Or, oh my gosh, just always be happy or blah. They're just in it. My kids went through K through 12, three kids in public schools. I don't think they ever received an hour on what an emotion was and what is the right way to hold it. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's like amazing. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like they learn, they learn all this stuff about government. And all this, you know, it's like, what's an emotion? I don't you know. So actually you need to know what your emotion system is and you need to understand the relationship to what your primate is going to do when you get shamed or when you get, in, 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 you know, treated wrongly and get enraged or when you have a defeat and you lose. The system is, has got uh, emotion, energized motion response sets Okay, with negative events, okay, to create negative feelings. That's a right relation. They should be that way. Okay. However, if you don't understand what they are and you don't like the feelings, you're pissed off about the situation and you're worried about what your negative reaction is going to mean to others, like you'll get judged, then you start criticizing, controlling, avoiding, or blaming. I call the ABCs avoid, blame, control to try to manage the negative feeling, negative situation relation, okay? And it is this avoidance, blame, and control that I very, very often see traps people, okay, in the triple negative neurotic loop. So negative situation, negative feeling, and then a negative, and this may maladaptive, water to a grease fire type of structure. And if you start bringing that kind of avoid, blame, and control to your feeling systems and the systems that you're in, you got problems. It's basically, it's a one-way ticket to get reciprocally narrowed into forcing yourself to think a particular way about the world. It has got to be this way. I can't accept this. This fucking sucks. I either hate myself or I hate the world. I've got to try to block it and not attend to it. And then I'll get flooded by it and reminded that I can't cope with this. And that's the cycle of the internalizing condition. Okay. So what are we to do? Well, the first thing you can do is you can become aware of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, people are now not generally metacognitively aware of this. They're, un, to use a term from uh, Marv Goldfried, they're unconsciously incompetent, okay? Meaning they're not self-consciously aware of what's going on, and they're responding in a way is like water to a grease fire. That's what you do when you come to therapy. My job, first and foremost, is then help you become consciously incompetent, <laughs> Okay. Sounds kind of paradoxical, but you'll see this. You'll get many times. I can actually see now that this injury that my dad did that tried to make me feel tough, that when I get injured, I actually puff up my chest and say, fuck you, and don't really talk about it when I'm actually injured. And I realize now that my tendency to get angry is really trying to defend against. And then I lash out in a way to protect myself initially, but then other people lash out. I get distance. I run away from them and I continually injure my feelings oh my God, I'm in this relationship and lo and behold, I'm doing it again. She just raised this issue. She criticized me. I got really defensive and yelled at her. Now you're 
consciously incompetent. I now have insight that my system is responding to shit in the past in a way that's transferring it to here. It sets me up in a habituated way to respond. I can now see that. Okay. So then what we help them, once you can be consciously incompetent, then you get models for how you might be. You role play it in therapy. If you're a more solution focused kind of person, more active, I can be this way. I can be a number. And then you get them in a position. And if you get lucky, you give them some guidance about how to be different. Hey, instead of getting angry, oh God, there's the feeling. I'm actually, I think I'm hurt. I don't think I'm at first angry. I think I'm hurt. And then they say to their wife, that actually hurts me. And instead of getting angry, they're like, oh really? I didn't know that. It's like, yeah, because this reminds me of something and it really, I really feel kind of sad. And then all of a sudden, if you get lucky and the wife responds a different way, now all of a sudden you've opened up a whole new way of being. And then you start to get consciously competent where the person can say, oh my gosh, you know, uh, I can now enact this as long as my frontal lobe self-conscious system is conscious and bringing to bear. And then finally, the fourth stage is actually unconsciously competent, which means you've layered out your whole nother new way of operating and you don't even have to think about it like a procedure. You just normally say, actually, hey, in this difficult situation, let me reflect on how I'm feeling. Let me share communicatively in a way that's open, encouraging, but also assertive and boundaried in a way that enables us to talk productively rather than dropping into a defensive, immediately reactive uh, sense of threat. Uh, then all of a sudden that comes naturally. Uh, so that's one uh, way. I have a whole system about how to kind of identify these loops and, and afford it, but I'll pause there. It's helping people learn their triple negative neurotic loops. That's so brilliant, Greg. In terms of that interrupting that negative feedback cycle before it gets going, like having that awareness of this is a pattern that's deeply rooted in me and it's about to kick off again. And I'm going to follow the same thing unless I can reframe it and start to kind of consciously build a different way of doing it. Um, but it's it. I, it was reminding me as well of the Psyche and Psychopathology series, which I loved. Um, I thought was amazing with yourself and Gary and John um, talking about the big five personality scale and how that will affect your reactions as well. Because there was something I was noticing that some people who might not be as, because we're talking about self-awareness, I mean, understanding yourself and understanding that structure seems to be so key in understanding your reactions as well. Because a person who's really high in negative emotion will meet that battle all the time um, and might think that there's something wrong with them if they don't understand that, oh, okay, this is actually, you know, a part of me and it has this, you know, reasoning to it. You know, it makes sense. Um, and so I wonder, how does that figure into this system here? Do you, is that something you advise people to learn about? Oh, absolutely. I understand? mean, right. So I, I mean, I train people how to be psychological doctors. Okay. Um, I built a system. Uh, which is kind of mapped out in the tree of life behind me here. Um, one that maps out their systems of adaptation, actually their habit system, their feeling experiential system, the relational system, the defense and justification. Um, and then around that, there are domains of development uh, that as you become a human person, uh, there are reliable individual difference domains, one of which is your temperamental trait structure that we can map with what's called the big five that you alluded to. Um, the big five show that there are pretty reliable patterns of dispositional responding uh, that are delineated at least over five, some out of six, we don't need to get into that, but um, out of five, two of the most common dimensions of traits are what are called extroversion and neuroticism, okay? Now, when we remember we were talking about the animal, what the animal is doing is it's basically scanning its environment, tracking behavioral investments, okay? To do that, it's basically got to identify value 
It's got to invest in value, approach what is good, and spend energy actively um, on what's good, and then and then conserve energy when things are going well. It also needs to then identify what's bad, spend energy to get the hell away from what's bad, and lick your wounds when you've experienced an injury. Okay, these core structures basically give rise to desire and contentment, meaning active approach is desire, and then you feel contented when you experience that. Extroversion is essentially your set point for active approach in general. So how much energy and pleasure are you looking? It then blends into the relational world, which is extroversion to connect socially with other people. Okay, your gregariousness. So people are dispositionally oriented toward extroversion at their embodiment level and then socially. And at the same time, you have neuroticism. Neuroticism is the set point of negative affect, which is basically ready to respond to potential threat jerk the animal primate system into ready to respond to that threat with a degree of intensity, reactivity, and length of time till baseline, okay? If you're high on trait neuroticism, that means that anxiety, which is active avoidance, and depression, which is lick your wounds after bad shit happens, is much more salient in your consciousness. People call this a sensitive person, okay? Which is super important. We need that, but it makes you super vulnerable to getting jolted all the time by negative shit. And if your ego, if we haven't socialized your ego, okay, in a way that knows how to relate to that and whisper to the vulnerable horse, but instead become, why am I such a sensitive person? I hate being sensitive, this sucks. And the flavor of negativity pulls the way you justify. And if the flavor of negativity pulls the negative justification system, that's the internalizing condition. In other words, you start justifying, I suck, the world sucks, the future sucks, and now you're flooding your negative affect system with absolutist statements about why you suck and why the world sucks, and that, folks, is a really vicious loop. You have to help the system understand this is your primate system. We want to cultivate a head relationship, a person-head relation, and ultimately you cultivate what's called a metacognitive observer view, um, and then you want to position yourself in different uh, regards, and there are ways, reasons and why you can train people in this kind of perspective, and that is going to unplug the vicious negative neurotic loop um, and afford an opportunity to prevent you from getting trapped into a parasitic process and reciprocally open yourself up to be much more flexible and adaptive. And why do you think, Greg, that this is happening so much more now in the modern world? I mean, because the statistics on mental health obviously have been steadily increasing in the 21st century, um, particularly amongst younger people in a way that seems to be, you know, kind of a quiet epidemic. And what, what is it that you think is driving it? Um, yep. Uh, I, I talked about the youth said. mental health. So, so there's definitely a mental health crisis in general and an undeniable crisis in our youth. Just the sheer numbers. I just saw some numbers from the CDC uh, that show most recent numbers of girls in particular reporting uh, suicide, uh, reporting depression, anxiety, um, I couldn't remember the exact qualification, but it was 57% uh, relative to 29% 10 years ago. So almost a doubling of falling under a risk for depression and anxiety. 57%, more than half, okay, of girls. Uh, boys had gone up some, but significantly, not nearly as dramatically. Um, but anyway, it's, even that is a, a you know, th- that amount of distress is really, really problematic. What do I think is going on? Well, I think a lot of things are going on. It's almost certainly a complex, wicked problem with many different causes. Um, The first thing that I think is going on is the basic social setup 
that we have right now in the digital world is very, very dangerous, okay? Let's remember what we're prepared for. We're prepared to be dropped into an intimate band situation where we have long ongoing conversations across a wide variety of time with face-to-face -face individuals that are cultivating a shared sense of community, belonging, and commitment to each other over a long period of time. That is the general hunter-gatherer structure that we're expected to be in, okay? What that affords is what you're learning with people is you got a primate self, and of course they don't talk necessarily like this, but you got to justify yourself. The way you justify to people in a particular context is, a, is really cultivating a continuity and a potential integration. You know people over a long period of time. You're in it together. You're working together in a shared basic sense of structure, okay? Fast forward to where we are now. You are inundated with information, okay? We have lost contact with a lot of the embedded, embodied, inactive ritual connection stuff. A lot of what we're doing is basically trying to get influence rather than relational value. Influence is an instrumental capacity, like your number of likes. Hey, and then I can sell advertising, then I can get money, I can get a job. All of that is just basic instrumental influence, which we certainly care about. We want the capacity to influence others but we also deeply need to be seen, known, and valued for who we are. Uh, I argue the primate heart is tracking both the need to be seen, known, and valued, at the same time, the need for uh, social influence, but they're two very separate things. In a hunter-gatherer scenario, those actually things are tightly knitted. In our modern scenario, we're, we're able to get influence. You could bet a million dollars, that's a mass amount of influence, nothing to do with relational value on a lottery. Your job is then how much money you make. Well, that's transferable and fungible. You play a role, you get money. If you're not really good, we'll fire you and we'll get somebody else who does it for the same. How many likes do you get? Do you really know this person? Okay, or are you actually, uh, if you're just operating the world for instrumental power and control and not seen, known and valued, that's a very, very dangerous place for the human heart, okay? So what I think's happening now is that we are very much in an alien environment Girls are coming along in particular that have social media access. We have raised a field, uh, this is my fault, the counseling uh, and psychology field. We have rightfully became very aware of trauma. And then we became so unbelievably concerned with trauma from the old days, which we weren't attending to trauma, that now we have expanded the concept and we're basically telling everybody, oh my God, you can be traumatized by climate change. You can be traumatized by, if somebody doesn't use your pronoun, that's a total trauma. And I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm simply saying the threshold that our society now has for what would be genuine abuse, what would be genuine injury, what would be genuine threat has fundamentally changed. We have loosened that. So to the extent that if you feel like you got bumped by the environment and you say it's a trauma for you, well, then it must be a trauma for you. Um, when do we sit up and hold up and say, actually, you're being a histrionic wimp. Okay, uh, you know, uh, are we raising a uh, psychology day woman? Are we raising a nation of wimps? Uh, you definitely can argue uh, that we have basically created uh, the counseling field, the psychology field, mental health field, created a raw nerve scenario where it essentially handed the microphone to individuals. And if you were able to come forward and say, I was injured, we would create a, and believe me, that was absolutely necessary. It still is necessary, but it's how to do that in a way that regulates it uh, John Hudson Haight talks about the coddling of the American mind, uh, and we definitely have lots of arguments uh, 
so that's a whole big issue. Of course, there's a whole meaning crisis. Like, what is our philosophy? There's real shit that's happening in the world that's deeply distressing. A lot of uncertainty about jobs and things along those lines. So there's a huge amount of complicated networks that are operative. Uh, but fundamentally, the social structure and the digital world, I think, is a big issue. I think the failure to educate about emotions and give us clear identity. I think the care which is totally well-intentioned, but then creates essentially a hyper raw nerve kind of dynamic that doesn't know how to also downregulate, uh, you know, and interpret, hey, yeah, you got bumped, but you now get a callus. In my family, we emphasize emotional calluses. You know, yeah, that got, you know, that sucks. And then you get over it. You don't be like, oh my God, how do we actually make sure this never happens to anyone again as we try to create, you know, this very, very unbelievably soft wrap everyone in a bubble kind of dimension. It's like, no, the world's going to bounce you around. Uh, that's, uh, that's part of the thing we should expect. And it seems to tie back so much into the problem of psychology in terms of like a time when psychology is needed in such a sense, like you have a mental health crisis, but it seems to be being furthered by a lot of the advice. Like when you talk about the justification structure, if you're going to tell people, no, you you actually are injured and you are hurt and you're going to be you know hurt more and it doesn't make you stronger. It's just a kind of finite game of, you know, infinite victimhood or whatever. But that leads to this the situation we're in now when it, when it's most needed um, to have some sensible kind of advice. And where do you see, I suppose, the hope coming in this situation? Is there anywhere that you see at the moment that's kind of dealing with these problems in any way? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly listen. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I'm definitely tis the best of times is the worst of times kind of person. I can totally go pessimistic and dark. And we talk about all the things that make me upset, at, uh, you know, and I uh, like, oh, I often sometimes talk about my pessimistic. We're all fleas on a Titanic. <laughs> you know, that's a nice woohoo. You know, I'm a flea on a Titanic. And then at other times, I really think we might be able to transform this Titanic. Um, into a real livable garden, you know, and and indeed the whole unified theory um, is about the idea that we can find our, still have time, still feasible and reasonable think that we might find our path to wise living. Um, so, you know, I, I really do think there's a felt sense ever since COVID, there's a felt sense that the current structure of the globe, of our knowledge systems and everything else feels has run its course. It's now outdated. We definitely need something new. I'm having a conference uh, called Consilience, Unifying Knowledge and Orienting Toward a Wisdom Conference. I'm bringing together 40 plus individuals. We can leave some show message in the show notes for that. Um, brings together 40 plus presenters and affords them a lot of different opportunities to share their perspectives. These are individuals I've loved connecting with. I have relationships with them all. Um, and to me, when you look at that landscape, you're really seeing an emerging set of ideas that may really be different. I think John is exhibit A. In fact, he's given the keynote uh, for my consilience conference in terms of uh, kind of creating the kind of professor vision uh, between philosophy and psychology that is really needed. Uh, that's not the only thing that's needed by any stretch. We need lots of different things that are emerging. But I do get the sense that there's a collective sense that the conventional structure is not up to the task, uh, that it's time for an upgrade and people are really starting to look for that. And I see a lot of brilliant and creative ideas out there, uh, like John and many other people. And it feels like there's a momentum to say, yes, we are in this together. We need to get some sort of rooted cosmopolitan sensibility that grounds us. Um, and people are actively searching and presenting stuff that I find enormously exciting and hopeful. 100%. I will definitely be attending that conference. Um, I think your work and John's work and that whole little corner of the internet is one of those highlighting places where you can see people that are hungry for meaning and for wisdom um, that unfortunately isn't being met 
in many other places. I mean, as you've kind of laid out this whole argument, Greg, in my mind, I've been thinking that this should be a subject in a sense, a kind of psychological literacy that should be standardized. Um, do you think that that's something that could be delivered to the digital world? Because, I mean, my research is on the ethical issues of social media and the business model um, particularly, and how devastating that's been for so many people because it's parasitic essentially. But also in the digital world, there is this potential if it was structured properly to deliver connections to people and to have, you know, somewhat relationships and mentorship and some guidance. And if it could be set up with the proper values, maybe it could further meaning and wisdom rather than foolishness. And that's exactly right. And and in fact, I, you know, in 2016, I built this thing called the garden and I was already weird. And then by the time I went into the garden, I was like weird squared, you know, it's like outside, I was getting further and further outside. Um, And I was sensing that the current structure needed an upgrade um, the unified theory, grounded as it is in the tree of knowledge, okay, points that life, mind, and culture are these different planes of existence. Why? Basically, because there's an emergence of a novel information processing communication network. Cells, DNA, RNA, they process information in the communication network. Uh, animals with the nervous system and animal-animal communication do the same. Obviously, human language uh, is another novel information processing system uh, that affords a communication network at the culture person plane. If that's the case, then you don't, you know, our patterning minds go, well, if that happened, no life and mind and culture, would there be another one, right? And then you look at the 21st century and you're like, hey, we just laid down an artificial intelligence computational internet system that seems to be affording us a new kind of information interface processing communication network, right? The digital, holy shit. We now are actually, we used to have tools and justifications that were completely separate because the tools didn't interface with us informationally. Now we got chat GPT, Google and everything else. And it's like our justification and digital systems are now completely intertwining with memes and other kinds of notions, okay? So the, the, this affords us a huge potential. It also creates all sorts of potential disasters, but it affords us a huge potential. And I knew that there would be a fundamentally different, I mean, a, a educational problem and process. The garden idea is actually an entire unfolding embedded in it. I haven't laid all this out. I've talked about it, but, uh, you know, the idea, the prototype idea is literally for kindergarten. Okay. My mom was a preschool and or a kindergarten teacher. You build a preschool with a garden theme, okay? And you just have come kids play inside of a garden and build their relationship with bees and other animals, rocks, okay, and trees and afford them a nested natural environment where they would learn, grow, and play. And then over time, in a K through 12 sort of thing, that garden would unfold into propositional knowledge structures, okay? So for example, the stepping stone right here is a stone, it's a rock you put to, and you teach kids all about whatever rocks in nature. And then it unfolds, it's actually steps into the standard theory of elementary particle physics. That's actually S-T-E-P-P, stepping stone. And what that points to is just one example, sort of like you would have this idea of the material world and you'd have kids playing with water and sand and all this other stuff. And then slowly you would introduce them to the physical sciences, ultimately getting them by 12th grade to the standard theory of elementary particle physics that was actually in one of their prototype rocks 
that they had. The same thing for bees. There's nested modals about mindedness in the bees. There's the tree of life. And ultimately, you're a culture person that's trying to figure out what the values are. You eat off the tree of knowledge and hopefully find your way to the path of the tree of life, which of course places it right in smack dab in the Genesis Abrahamic mythos traditions, um, all of which are now unfolding across a natural science into psychology, social science, and humanistic sensibility. Um, you can then trail that from kindergarten to doctoral training in physics and have the entire knowledge system be sort of laid out in a scientific humanistic way. That's what the argument is. And you could do that digitally. You could do it virtually. You could do it visually and embody it in real places. You can bring communities together that enable that and afford us a genuine educational structure uh, that's up to the task uh, for this age and affords the visual, digital stuff. Because you could obviously do all sorts of virtual reality with this kind of uh, platform. Yeah, that was what I was thinking about in terms of, yeah, an actual garden or a digital garden and using, because that does seem to be what needs to happen is a new type of education system that prepares people for this world. I mean, all the study I've done now on the digital environment is how we kind of live in this man-made environment that we're adapting to, but it's actually adapting to us to capture our attention. It's really pathological, um, particularly for younger people that are growing up in a completely contrived environment for the first time in human history. Um, it's entirely aimed at their, you know, attention capture. And that's going to cause a lot of developmental issues. So an environment that was aimed at, you know, fulfillment, flourishing, actualization, self-realization. And if we had a framework for that, would probably be the answer to those problems. But I think you're dead right that we're just in the kind of infancy of envisioning what that's going to be um, and how it's going to work. Yep, exactly. Uh, my my unique journey is actually um, we, we can gather a lot of momentum in the right direction if we understand the problem of psychology and how to solve it. That uh, actually sits at the network nexus of a huge number of different things that is at the root of our fragmented knowledge, at the root of how our instrumental knowledge is grossly outstripping our wisdom and how we might be able to reclaim genuine wisdom about our true natures and about what are the values we might be oriented toward and how we might educate our young uh, in a way that enables them to grip meaning in life uh, and be oriented toward wisdom. 100%. Thank you so much, Greg, uh, for this conversation and for your work in general. I 100% I agree with you that the problem of psychology is at the root of this and your solution to it is uh, definitely a glimmer of hope in an otherwise chaotic time. So thank you for your work. Hey, man, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and share my ideas.